morning. Take your Bibles, turn to Revelation 1. Y'all are singing well today. Did you know that? Sometimes I sit in the back room in the green room. I'm like, man, they sing in really lousy today. But today's not one of those days. You guys, you guys, were, you guys were on your game. And um, we typically start with worship. And I hope that prepares your heart for God's word. My goal today as we open God's word is I'm hoping that it prepares your heart to be better worshipers. It's kind of circular that way. And before we jump into Revelation 1, we're in a series called The King is in the Room. I want to talk about leadership for a minute. Um, think Old Testament and New Testament. Do any um, great leaders come to mind? What, what name pops into your head? Moses. Okay, that makes sense. He's kind of the great leader of the Old Testament, right? Okay, who else pops into your head? Paul. We got Paul. That's New Testament for sure. Paul was a great leader. Keep going. Give me another name. I heard David somewhere. Did somebody say David? Nobody said David, not me. I'm talking David, like Old Testament. Don't be pulling that. Um, don't be getting me in trouble. David in the Old Testament, I would consider him a great leader. One more, give me another name. No, you guys were just all muddled. What was the name? Solomon, okay, great leader for sure. Solomon as well. It's interesting, when you think of the great leaders that are mentioned throughout scripture, there, there's some commonalities with these guys. Um, life always wasn't easy. They tended to have some critics. They tended to have some opposition. When you think of Moses, uh, God says, you, you're those people, man, they're like stiff-necked, grumbling and complaining. When you think about David, David, you know, David was a faithful servant to Saul. He would have done better, but Saul kept like throwing spears at him, chasing him around the wilderness. Even when David became king, family issues all over the place. Paul obviously faced difficulty and was thrown in prison and all of those things. Another similarity that I want you to think about amongst these leaders, many of them in scripture, um, it's mentioned that they had a really, really good faithful friend. Who was that for Moses? It was Aaron. Who was it for David? Jonathan. Who was it for Paul? Timothy. Okay, hey, you guys did a really, really good job in naming the great leaders in the Bible. Did we forget anyone? Jesus. Yeah, that would have been a good one to mention. I know you're scared of Sunday school answers because whenever you yell out Jesus, I make fun of you. But, but Jesus would have been a good one to mention. I, I would argue that you could do a whole leadership study just by observing Jesus. Would you agree? His intentionality, his staying course, staying on mission. His intentionality in his conversations with different people. We've been in this series, the king is in the room, looking at his encounters, how he navigates the conversation, how he gives illustrations to make points. Who was Jesus' friend? Do we know? It was John. Last night, they were like, Peter. No, it wasn't Peter. Peter was the leader of the 12 disciples. It's interesting. When you look at Jesus, he talks sometimes about his 120 followers. That's in Acts or the 70 that he sends out. Jesus spent a lot of time with multitudes, but he's pouring into 12 men. Inside the 12 men, there's three, Peter, James, and John. Peter is listed first. He is the leader of the 12 disciples. But I don't think he was Jesus' closest friend. As a matter of fact, I think Peter could be quite annoying. Leaders can be that way. Sometimes you sense a little bit of tension between Peter, the leader, and John, his best friend. At the end of the book of John, Jesus is describing to Peter how Peter's going to die. Peter looks at John and goes, what about that guy? I'm sensing tension in the room. 
James and John, the two brothers, they go to Jesus. They're like, hey, can one of us sit at your right hand and one of us sit at your left hand in glory? Listen, I think a piece of that was just to block Peter. They didn't want Peter in either seat. I can't prove that, but sometimes I wonder. John was the close friend. You're like, are you sure about that? I'm like, yeah, just ask John. Because John kept writing in his gospel. Uh, Jesus looked at the disciple Jesus, that, that, you know, the, he, he looked at the disciple that Jesus loved. And the disciple that Jesus loved was with Jesus. He's always describing himself as the disciple Jesus loved. But one of the things that we see about John, at the key moments for Jesus, he was there. At the transfiguration, John was there. At the Last Supper, it was John seated next to Jesus. In the garden, before Jesus is betrayed, John is there praying with Jesus. When, when Jesus is at the cross, it's from the cross that he speaks to his best friend, John. He entrusts his mother to John's care. That's John. John is Jesus' closest friend through ministry. And as we go to Revelation 1, John is alone. All the other disciples are dead. They've been martyred. John is the last disciple standing. And you can look in Revelation 1.9. We're not going to cover this, but it says he is on the Isle of Patmos. He is exiled to an island. He is basically a prisoner put in a rock in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. If you've ever been to San Francisco, think like Alcatraz. We don't want to deal with this guy. We're going to exile him over there. And he is alone. And he is in prison. And verse 9 tells us fairly clearly why is he there? Because of the account of the gospel and his witness for Jesus Christ, his best friend. He won't quit talking about Jesus. And what we see in Revelation 1, my intent was actually to preach the whole encounter of Revelation 1. That's my tendency. Take a lot of verses and try to jam it into a small amount of space. We're going to do the exact opposite today. I don't think I've ever done this in all my time preaching. We're going to just look at two verses. And all I want to look at is John talking about his best friend, Jesus, and the way that he describes him. You're going to see it, just two verses. I'm going to pick it up in Revelation 1.5. It says this, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's about as far as we're going to get. But there's a lot in those two verses. The title of this message is simply this, Why Jesus Deserves First Placed. That's the argument that I'm going to make throughout this message. I believe that based off John's description, there is a strong argument to be made that 2,000 years later, Jesus deserves first place in our lives. Look at the first thing that he says. Here's the points. Jesus is first the faithful witness. He is the faithful witness. A couple things, going to break this down doesn't say a faithful witness. It says the faithful witness. There's only one faithful witness. To be a witness, if you're standing in a courtroom and you're a witness in a trial, you have to have a viewpoint. You have to have observed some things. You had to have seen something. You had to be there to be a witness. Jesus is the faithful witness. Well, well what is he a witness to? Let me give you three things. From Scripture, here's the first. He's a witness to truth. In John 18, 37, Jesus is on trial. He's standing before Pilate. We read this. It says, And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. 
Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. Get this next phrase. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Why did Jesus come? To bear witness to the truth. What's his mission statement? To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate responds and says, what is truth? There's something about Pilate's response that makes me smile. Because it means the same problems that we're having in our culture today existed 2,000 years ago. People were struggling to understand what truth is. We live in a world where what someone feels is more important than what is true. We live under the expectation that we will affirm every delusion that anyone embraces. Jesus is true north. If I were to take you all in a room, put you in a kayak, put you in the middle of Lake Michigan where you couldn't see shore and say, hey, why don't you paddle yourselves back to Grand Haven? But I didn't give you a compass. How's that going to go? You can't just paddle every direct, any direction you want to go and call it true. Jesus is true north. The reason, the purpose that he came was to bear witness to the truth. And sadly, without Jesus, we get lost pretty easy, don't we? So Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to testify to the truth. Here's the second thing that he gives witness to, that he's in a unique place to be the witness. He gives witness of God to us. He's a witness for God to us. John 1.18, John writes, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus, because he has been in the throne room of God. He has made him known. John 3, 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And don't miss it. What Jesus is saying in these verses, what John is conveying about his friend Jesus is this. John 1, 1. First verse of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the faithful witness for God to us because he is God. Now, it's interesting, different translations, the Jehovah Witnesses, they believe that that verse actually reads, he was a God. I remember way back before I was a pastor, we were raising our kids and where the Grand Haven High School is, that's on Ferris, it dead, dead ends into Lakeshore, and we had a property right there that we raised our kids on, and there was a gate to get back into the property, there were several homes back there, and uh, we got a call from the gate, hey, we're so-and-so and so-and-so, we're Jehovah Witnesses, can we come? talk to you for a little bit. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I opened the gate. Kristen's like, why did you do that? I'm like, well, because they don't know it's a quarter mile back to the house. I'm amused. Okay, so, so, so they, they found their way back to the house. They walked the quarter mile, and I quickly turned the conversation to this first. And it's interesting, with Jehovah Witnesses, they usually go out in pairs, too. Um, a mentor and then a person that's a little bit more advanced. And the person that was newer in the faith, they were explaining to me, and I took them right to John 1.1, and I'm like, hey, our Bibles read different. Yours say a God. Mine says he is God, which, which is right. And they were like, well, the oldest translations, they have the article there. They have that word a in there. I'm like, really? What they didn't know that I knew was my father-in-law on that same property had something called the scriptorium. Hundreds of ancient manuscripts dating back thousands, you know, 1,500 years with old manuscripts. I'm like, hey, let's go take a look and see if that's true. (laughs) 
the, the, the more educated said, well, I don't know that we have time for that right now. And um, they had their quarter mile back. I enjoyed it. It's funny, I don't need to argue whether Jesus was God from this verse. We can argue whether there's an A, how the Greek should be translated. Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's making a claim that Jesus is the fingerprint. He's the exact replica. He is more than just a witness of God. He is God. Colossians 1.15 says this, he is the image of the invisible God. This concept that when we see Jesus, we see God the Father, that everything that can be known about God the Father is revealed through his Son, who is also God, Jesus Christ. It is repeated so many times throughout the, Old, er, throughout the New Testament. I'm starting to think it's important, that it's critical. Does Jesus have a heart for broken people, for the lost? Well, then we can know with surety that God has a heart for broken people, for the lost. Is God patient? Well, was Jesus patient with his disciples? Is God faithful? Does he keep his promises? Look to Jesus. He is the evidence. More importantly than just being a witness for the truth and a witness for God to us, he's a witness to God for us. Look at what it says in 1 John 2.1. John writes, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Here's what John just said. Right now, same as it was 2,000 years ago, as we sit here right now, if anyone sins, you have a lawyer, you have an advocate arguing on your behalf. Who is that lawyer? Jesus Christ the righteous. Who is he making an argument for? For you to God. Any accusation that is brought against you, Jesus bears witness before God. It says this in Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is in heaven right now bearing witness for you. That's an incredible thing. And by the way, y'all aren't innocent. What he's bearing witness to is that because of his work on the cross, our sins, our guilt is covered. I think Jesus is the faithful witness. How about you? Okay, so what's the next point? Look in the text. It says next, it says this, the firstborn of the dead. Ever since Genesis 3, when we read in, in, in the account of, of the fall of Adam and Eve, God looks at the tree and says, hey, you can eat of anything in the garden, but if you eat of that tree, you will die. From the moment Adam and Eve chose to sin, to rebel against God, death has been our ultimate enemy. Genesis 1 tells us that we're created in the image of God. Ecclesiastes 3 says that God has placed eternity in our hearts and as eternal beings, death is the ultimate enemy. Paul describes it this way. In 1 Corinthians 15, he makes this argument. He says, if Christ has not been raised, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, your faith is futile, worthless. You're still in your sins. You have no covering. 
then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. This isn't true of you, but it's anyone who's put their faith in Christ. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, none of it matters. And if Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of, most, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let me be clear on this. Only Jesus claims to have defeated death. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And because Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, we know that our enemy is defeated. Colossians 1.18 says it this way. Speaking of Christ, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Okay, what difference does that make? Look what it says next. That in everything, he might be preeminent. Hey, you want to know why Jesus deserves first place in our life? Because he defeated death. So what should our church primarily be about? The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. What should our families be about? What are the things that should dominate our conversation? The goodness of Jesus Christ. What's worth giving our lives to? Jesus Christ. What will last? Our relationship with Jesus Christ because Jesus is the firstborn of the death. Dead, excuse me, our enemy is defeated. Here's the next thing. Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. I know you guys are like, man, these are brilliant points. Where did you get these? Are you reading your text? I'm just telling you what John told you. He is the ruler of kings on earth. Because Jesus rules the earth's kings, we can relax. Because Jesus rules the earth's kings, we can relax. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. We live in a culture that has adopted a mentality that no one has the right to tell me what to do. And I'll tell you what, it is dangerous and it is antithetical to the follower of Jesus Christ. Our protection is actually when we submit to the authorities that God has placed in our lives. And just as a sidebar, parents, be very, very careful that when your kids, who hopefully are going back to school this week, and every parent said, amen, okay? When your kids come home and complain about their teachers, don't be so quick to run back and confront the teachers. When your kids complain about their coaches, don't be so quick to go back and complain about their coaches. You understand when you're constantly critical of the authority in your kid's life, you're undermining your own authority in your kid's lives. Dads, when you complain about your boss, when you complain about politics and political leaders, where that is the thrust of the conversation in your home, understand what you're teaching your kids as it relates to authority. And my fear is for the church, our over-involvement in politics and this attitude of the age, it's actually rotting our soul. 50, 60 years ago, um, our country was in a time of civil unrest. It was the late 60s. And there's this great philosopher from the late 60s. He wasn't that great a philosopher, but he was a wonderful baseball pitcher. His name was Bob Gibson. He pitched for the St. Louis Cardinals. And he said this, in a world filled with hate, prejudice, and protest, I find that I, too, am filled with hate, prejudice, and protest. See, that's the danger of adopting the spirit of the age. I remember um, 
well, the apex of my basketball career, my, the peak of my career was um, sophomore year, small Christian school, JV basketball, backup point guard. <laughs> and some of you are like, well, you're, only, you're kind of short, like you should have seen that one coming, which is true, like I, I get that, but the problem was the starting point guard on our JV team was Jamie Brabenick, he was 5'1". I didn't like him. And uh, my role was to basically play hard at practice, to sit on the bench, and that was my role. I didn't get into a lot of games, but I remember there was one game, it was late in the fourth quarter, and the coach said, well, son, get in there. Which is great, I, I get to play, but the, the problem on this certain game is nobody had gotten injured, nobody had fouled out, we were down eight points, and when I say late in the fourth quarter, there was one second left, I hadn't played yet in the game, and the other team had the ball. I'm like, oh, coach, like, please. You know, I didn't, couldn't say it, but I'm like, please don't put me in. So I run over to the scorer's table. I say, I'm subbing in. The guy's like, are you for real? And, and I sub in. The ref blows his whistle. He hands it to the guy on the sideline for the other team. And, I, and I'm like, okay, that was good. I'm done. That was it. That was, that was all I got to do that game, my, my one second. And I remember I was so ticked. I mean, that was so humiliating. Like, keep me out of the game. Don't do that to me. Like, that's just cold. And I went home and I was complaining to my dad. I'm like, you can't believe what just happened. Like, this guy's an idiot. And my dad said, you do what your coach says. He, he got it. His followers of Jesus Christ were called to submit to authorities. Like, are you sure about that? Are you sure that's God's will? Well, here's what it says in First Peter. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I, I want you to see something. And, and, and there's a reason why I say this. As you struggle, as you watch politics, as you struggle with where you see our culture going, the natural response is to rebel against the authorities that are put in place. I would argue as followers of Jesus Christ, we got way better weapons. He, he just indicated one of those. He said that by doing good, you should put to shame the silence of, or you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So, so, so how do we influence politics? Well, one of the ways we do it is through our obedience, doing the things God's called us to do. I'm going to go obscure on you here, but Ezra 6.22 says this. Speaking of the Israelites who were under the burden of Assyrian rule, it says, And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful, get this, and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So the Israelites are rebuilding the temple, and the king of Assyria, their sworn enemy, has now come and aid, aided them in rebuilding the temple. Their obedience... God used to turn the heart of the king. Here's another weapon we have in our arsenal as it relates to politics, our country. We have prayer. Second Chronicles 7, 14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Listen, I'm not telling you to disengage from what's going on in our culture. As it relates to politics, vote. Educate yourself. Rally around candidates. Some of you will be called to run for office. That's a wonderful thing. But don't fret. 
who's in control. What a wonderful thing, that promise from Second Chronicles that basically says your authority, no matter how messed up that authority might be, you have the ear of that person's authority. He is the king of the worst kings. Because Jesus rules the earth's kings, we can relax. Here's the next one, straight from the text. Jesus is the one who loves us. Because Jesus is the one who loves us, we live in, with confidence. Now, the first three things on this list, that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, that he is, king of the, or he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, that he is the faithful witness, that, that establishes who Jesus is, why he deserves first place, his standing. This fourth one, because he's the one that loves us, that's the game changer. That's the one that makes it personal. But let me try to explain. Can, can I throw some doctrine at you? Are you guys cool with that? I'll be quick, like two minutes. We good? Okay. There's other things other than Christ that bear witness to who God is. Clearly taught to us in Scripture. One of the things is creation. Romans 1, verses 19 and 20, they basically say that God's invisible attributes can be clearly seen through the world that he's created. The problem with creation as a witness, look at the last phrase in that verse, it says this, so that they are without excuse. Cre creation is a faithful witness, but all it does is condemn us. God gives us another witness to his character and nature. It's the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the Old Testament law. We're going to spend the majority of our fall as a church going through the Ten Commandments. We've never done this as a church. The Ten Commandments reveal to us the character of who God is. It also reveals to us a lot about ourselves, and it, God willing, will help us see our desperate need for a Savior. But the law also gives witness to who God is. Deuteronomy 31.24 says this, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, he said, take this book, this book that he had just finished, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of, your, of the Lord your God. Last phrase, that it may be there for a witness against you. Romans 3.19 says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The intent of the law was to bear witness to who God is. Its purpose was never to save. Galatians will tell us that the purpose of the law, it was a mentor, it was a tutor, it was a guardian. It, it explained the character of the God and it held us until the promised Messiah or Savior. A third thing that gives witness to who God is is our conscience. Romans 2.14 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. Get this. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflict, conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. They're saying, the Gentiles who never even got the law, because they're created in the image of God, God has given them a conscience which gets pricked when they sin. So there are certain things that give witness to who God is. Creation, the law, our conscience. The problem with those witnesses, they can't save. Jesus alone is the faithful witness. He bears witness to who God is. But the problem is because he's a faithful witness, he can't lie. 
Those other witnesses, they place us at the scene of the crime. Jesus comes along and please hear me, he doesn't declare that we're innocent. That's not his testimony. He can't. He testifies the truth. We're guilty. What Jesus is able to do that the other witnesses cannot do is he says, even though they're guilty, I'll take their place. I'll absorb God's wrath. I'll take their punishment in their place. Why would Jesus do that? Because he loves us. God's love for us is not theoretical. He put it on full display when he sent his son to be the faithful witness, not only to who God is and what our condition truly is, but to cover our sins. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. I can see laying down your life for a friend. That, that's noble. How about your enemies? Romans 5, 6 says, while we were still weak, some translations enemies, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Earlier, I showed you this verse talking about how Christ intercedes on our behalf, Romans 8.34. Who is there to condemn? Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Look what the next verse says in Romans 8. What's so separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor present things or things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we understand that God loves us in spite of us, not because of us and not some future version of us, when we understand that God loves us, he deserves first place because Jesus is the one who loves us. We live with confidence. Here's the next thing John mentions. Jesus is the one who has freed us from our sins. Because Jesus has freed us from our sins, all guilt and shame are removed. Colossians 2 verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Hey, reality check, we're all sinners, we're all guilty. Hey, another reality check? For those of you who have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Savior, you have now been declared innocent because the legal demands, the consequences of your sin, the wrath of God have been paid for by Jesus Christ. He took your place. It is canceled. You're no longer identified by your failures and shortcomings. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, speaking again of Christ, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The creator of the universe... The God who loved us devised a plan where he could put his love for us on full display and it required his son to pay our penalty on the cross. He loves us. He has freed us from our sins. One more. And he has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. I want you to note something. It says he's made us. It doesn't say he will make us. 
This isn't something future. This is future reality, current reality as well. We are, we are priests. We are a kingdom. We are God's people. Priests had access into the throne. They represented God to the people. They bore witness, but they also had access. They were the representatives, the intermediates between the people and God. We don't need an intermediary anymore. Christ has already done that. We have full access to a holy God. He has made us his people. Other passages refer to us as family, joint heirs with Christ. John's sitting on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And his friend shows up. Think that encouraged him? Fully glorified. John had already seen that at the transfiguration. He knew who he was talking to. And Jesus says, listen, I've got some more things for you to do. You're not done. Write. Grab a pen or a quill. Write it down. I got seven letters. You got to write to seven churches. Then in Revelation 4, I'm going to take you up into the throne room of God. You're going to see it for yourself. And you're going to see the events surrounding my second coming. And you're going to see heaven. And then you're going to see New Jerusalem come down to earth. And you're going to see Satan thrown into hell. Jesus being a faithful friend to John. John says that Jesus deserves first place because he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who loves us, who has freed us from our sins and has made us in a kingdom and priests. What's our proper response? Look at the end of verse 6. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Glory, dominion, that's worship. Jesus deserves all glory he gets all the praise. He gets all the glory. The glory that is thrown to us, we deflect and we defer to him. He gets first place. He is on the throne of our lives. He is the star of the show. Because of who Jesus is, he receives all glory and dominion. That word dominion simply means this. I'm going to do what he tells me to do. I'm willing to bend the knee. It's his will, not mine. Again, this is a little bit of an unusual message in this series. The king is in the room. We've been looking at encounters of Jesus back when he was in his earthly ministry 2,000 years ago, showing you that the king is in the room. I believe the king's in the room this morning. Do you agree? How do you know? How do you know that he's still king? How do you know that he still deserves first quote? first place maybe more importantly not whether he deserves it is he king is Jesus your king that's kind of the big question of this message is Jesus your king and here's the sad point I've been pastoring for a lot of years and I can look at a lot of faces and I can't answer that question for you but I believe that you know couple tells maybe for you to consider if you hear a message solely on who Jesus is do you become quickly bored or do you engage in the truth of who Jesus is secondly I love that John over and over the disciple that Jesus loved the disciple that Jesus loved the disciple that Jesus loved do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ 
where you view yourself as the disciple that Jesus loved. What a great thing. Three reasons that Jesus deserves first place because he's a proven faithful friend. Two more. Look at verse 7. Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. That word wail stuck in my head. Transferred literally, it's a high-pitched cry of pain, grief, anger. The root of the word is to to cut off. If you cut off your finger, you'd scream. That's kind of the picture. Who wails? All the tribes of the earth will wail. Why? On account of him. When? When he returns in the clouds. Jesus is a faithful friend. Something else to consider? Neutrality is not an option. Jesus is either your faithful friend or he is not. And the consequences of that choice are clear in Scripture. They're eternal. And then the third, Jesus was, is, and always will be worthy. Verse 8, I am the Alpha, the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. John, in introducing his reunion with his friend, twice in five verses. Revelation 1-4, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Jesus is the faithful friend. He testifies to the truth. He is the faithful witness and that will never change. That was true 2,000 years ago. It's true today. It'll be true next week, next month, next year, next decade, next century and through all eternity. Jesus deserves first place. Father, I thank you for your word. Two simple verses that tell us a ton about your son. Father, I pray that we would be motivated by those words, well done, my good and faithful servant, that that is not something that we contemplate what will be said in the future, but that is a question that we ask ourselves daily. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.